If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to the book of Galatians. We'll be in chapter 5 this morning. If you don't have your Bible with you, uh, you will be able to find Galatians chapter 5 in the the Bibles provided for you in the seats in front of you. Uh, that black Bible will have Galatians chapter 5. The passage that we are going to read from is a short passage. Uh, we'll be reading from that on page 975. As you're turning there, I want to read you a story from the Gospel of Luke. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What's written in the law? How do you read it? The lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan... As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he sat him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took, him, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever, he, whatever more you spend, I will repay every cent when I come back. Which of these three, do you think, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer answered, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You, go and do likewise. It's a good parable by Jesus. It's a famous parable. I read it, but I probably didn't need to. I could have referenced it, and all of you would have known what I was talking about. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. I think that we undervalue the difficulty in what Christ is asking us to do. We can think that if there was somebody almost dead by the side of the road, that we would go and help them. And indeed, we probably would. Hopefully, we would. But let's face it, on an everyday event, loving your neighbor as yourself is an immensely difficult and arduous task. Have you met people before? We are not nice. People can be just the absolute worst. We can be petty. We can be angry vindictive, mischievous. We can be uncooperative. We certainly are selfish. Loving your neighbor is a high, high calling. He says it is the second commandment that we are called to do. The greatest of these is to love God, but second is like it, which is an amazing statement from Christ. The second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. But even in the Gospel of Matthew, Christ says something similar to this in Matthew seven twelve, where he says, Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. This is, this is the same thing as saying, love your neighbor as yourself. You are to love your neighbor the way you want to be loved. He says, for this is the law and the prophets. But Jesus doesn't, doesn't stop there. He, he actually, that is an easier commandment than one he gave just a couple of chapters before in the same sermon when he says this in Matthew 5, 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor... 
Yeah, we have heard that. And hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's not like Jesus didn't know what he was asking. Jesus knew exactly what he was asking people to do when he said, you are to love your enemies. And it's not like he thought that if you loved your enemies, you would win them over with love and they would be all friendly to you. Earlier, even than that, he has prepared us for this statement by calling us out in the Beatitudes to love those who persecute us. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for my sake. When people persecute you and speak utter Uh, speak utterances of evil of all kinds against you. How can we do such things? If loving people who we love already is difficult, and it is, loving your neighbor is even more difficult, and it is. How are we ever supposed to get to loving our enemies? Where does this power come from? What in us, provokes us to love this way? Is this something that that is just a, something that's set out there for us that we can't ever reach? It's a goal for you to strive for, but you're never, ever going to get there. I don't think so. I think that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. In Galatians 5, 13 through 15, Paul says this, For you were not called to freedom, brothers, Excuse me, that's not what he says. Back up. I will read the word of God this time. (laughs) For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, Watch out that you are not consumed by one another. This is the word of the Lord. Quite often in time, when you read through Paul's letters, especially to churches, there's a pattern that is built up. It's famously known as the indicative imperative pattern. And if you hated grammar when you were a kid in in English, don't worry, we're going to explain that. Imperatives are telling you what you are to do. So go and do likewise is an imperative. It is a command from the Lord to you. Indicatives are telling you what is true. It's indicating what is true out in the world. And so when you read Paul's letters, especially to churches, there's often a pattern. The indicatives come first. Paul tells you what is true. What is objective reality out in the world? Christ has died for you and he has been risen from the grave for your redemption. He has rescued you from the present evil age. Christ has done these things, and only then do the imperatives come. Because Christ has done this, therefore you are to act in this way. You are to do this thing. In other words, while Paul doesn't say it, the structure of almost every letter that he writes to the churches takes on the idea that you've got to understand what is true. 
You have to understand what has happened. You have to understand who you are and who Christ is before you can understand how you should live. In light of this, Paul says first, you have been freed from your flesh to become holy. You are freed from your flesh to become holy. He talks here about freedom. And as you read through the book of Galatians, you realize that he's talking about a whole bunch of different kinds of freedom. We are freed from the law, he says several times. This is the whole purpose of the book. You don't need to keep the law anymore. You don't need to take on circumcision. You certainly don't need to take on the dietary restrictions or any of the other temple restrictions, the civil or ceremonial law. You don't need it anymore. You are freed from the law. And what more, you are freed from the curse that you are not cursed under the law anymore because you are freed from the law, and therefore you are also freed from God's wrath. You are freed from sin in your own life, and you are freed from your own weaknesses. Paul says in 1.4 that Christ has redeemed you from the present evil age. You are even redeemed, you are even freed from the circumstances in which you find yourself. The fallenness of the world is no longer a trap and a snare for you. You have been freed from it. But that doesn't help us too much. Because a number of people will read that idea of freedom and think that this means that they're free to do anything that they want to do. They have been freed from sin so that they can live however they want to. What they read, Paul is saying here, is you are freed from the consequences of sin. But that's not quite what Paul is doing. Notice he talks about calling. You were called to freedom. This is the same kind of calling that Paul has mentioned already in 1.6. It is the calling of Christ upon you. We talked about this several weeks in a row now. Jesus calls his sheep, they hear his voice, and they come to him. But the calling that Christ has placed upon your life is not, it is not forgiveness alone. This is one of the ways that you can make a shipwreck of your faith is thinking that the call of God upon you, that what the gospel calls you to is simple forgiveness. It is not simply forgiveness. Sometimes when we talk about what the gospel is, the gospel is the forgiveness of sins. Listen, the gospel cannot ever just be the forgiveness of sins. That is a highway. It is a paved, wide road that leads many to destruction. If you were to go back to the Good Samaritan, there was a very famous man, a large church pastor in our day and age, who wrote a blog post about that passage. And in that blog post, he talked about how really the Good Samaritan isn't about you going out and trying to be a Good Samaritan. The whole point of the Good Samaritan passage is this question that the man asks. He says, how am I going to be saved? He says, it's a vertical question. How do I make myself right with God? And so when Jesus is, is pushing him to, to give him answers and, and questioning him, what he's doing is trying to show the man that you can't do it on your own. Okay, so you can't be a good Samaritan on your own. And Christ is really the only good Samaritan. I give that a hearty amen. Except where he says, like, go and do likewise. In the Greek, that means go and do likewise. Like, it's just, it's a very simple command. You see the pattern that's laid out before you, do it. This isn't deep hermeneutics. It's just reading English. Go do the thing. It's not the case that we are just forgiven, that Christ just came to free us from the curse of our sins, but he did more than that. While forgiveness is the rightful starting place, his work goes much further. Christ is making all things new. 
He has defeated death. He provides life. He's sharing an eternal inheritance with you, the inheritance of the divine nature itself. He is being shared with you. He has overturned the power of Satan. He is rightly ruling over his own creation. He defeats all of his enemies. He gives us all new hearts and minds. He pours out his spirit upon us. Forgiveness is a part of that, but it certainly cannot encapsulate all of it. It is a cheap imitation of the gospel. If you're going to get in a car and you're going to take a trip, you can get in the car, but the car is not the destination. You have to actually go somewhere with it. Forgiveness is necessary. You need to have it. You've got to get in forgiveness in order to get where you're going, but it is not the end of the trip. It is not the goal of the trip. The car simply helps you get where you're going. It's not the goal itself. Likewise, forgiveness helps get us. It is necessary to get us where we're going, but it's not the end itself. The end itself is holiness. It is not forgiveness. What were you called to? You were called to freedom. We're going to talk about how that is related to holiness. Listen to what my wife read earlier from 1 Peter. We will read it again. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. You are to be holy like dad. You are to be holy like God is holy. He didn't call you to himself simply to forgive your sins, to leave you how you are. The whole purpose of his calling you was to make you what you are not, holy. You could also read this as be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Same word that Jesus used. Titus 2, verses 11 through 15. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. Listen, listen to what grace does. This whole thing is about grace. What does grace do? It brings salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Then he has to turn to Titus and say, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Paul says the same thing in Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. The whole work of the Spirit and working in Paul is to move people toward maturity in Christ, which you can read as toward holiness. You need to be forgiven to do that, but forgiveness is not the stop. And the problem with forgiveness Acting like that is the whole of the Christian faith is exactly what Paul says here when he says, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Because you see, if you think that the whole purpose of what Jesus has done for you is simply to forgive your sins and that's it, your flesh will leap on that. For Paul, the flesh is our weak and needy, sinful, mortal side. It is both the weakness of our bodies and the weakness of our dispositions. The two often go hand in hand. 
In Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, that is in my sinful flesh, my deteriorating body and, and the deterioration of my sin. That which I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. To believe only in the forgiveness of Christ and not to feel a pull toward holiness likely indicates that you were called by something to the gospel, but that something is likely not God. You were called to holiness. Pastor Doug preached on this a couple weeks ago. It's on the website. You should listen to it. It's a good sermon. Romans 6.1. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Certainly not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into his death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. Listen, if the purpose of Jesus' work, which Paul says is inconceivable, was simply forgiveness, you have a gargantuan opportunity for sin. If your sin brings about forgiveness, which is why Christ came solely to forgive you, then every time you sin, grace is multiplied for its own end of magnifying why grace is there, which is forgiveness. So your sin makes Christ glorious. If it's only about forgiveness, the more you forgive, or the more you sin, the more you're forgiven. The more you're forgiven, the greater Christ is. Paul says that is stupid beyond belief. It is not about forgiveness. Forgiveness is the car. Get in the car, drive. Holiness is the goal. Flesh in its weakness has needs. Notice what he says in verse 16. We will talk about this next week, but in verse 16, Paul says this. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The flesh has desires. The flesh will go after them all it can to make those desires true. It has needs. It has wants. It has desires. And as long as you have been forgiven, there's an opportunity in the flesh and you have to fight it. Listen, whether you do good things or whether you do bad things, the flesh will always seek to fulfill its own desires. Notice what Paul says at the end here. Notice the way that the whole passage is framed. He says, you are to use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. That's like the top layer of bread. And then there come two layers of meat. Those two layers of meat are, you are to serve one another, right? That's what you are supposed to do. So don't do this, do this. Serve one another because you fulfill the law and the bottom piece of bread is the matching bit. It's matching why it is that you don't use your freedom as an opportunity to serve one another. In verse 15, he says, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed with one another. I mean, there are open sins and there are hidden sins. Typically, open sins are just those things that you do out in the open that people can see and call you out on. These are dangerous and these are the devouring sins. The, the idea here is very simple. Listen, if you are going to use people for your own selfish needs and desires, if you are going to find an opportunity in the forgiveness that Christ has afforded to you to go out and bite and devour others so that you can get what you want out of it, Beware, because they're going to turn around and bite and devour you. Listen, this isn't rocket science. Kids do this all the time. I've got a new puppy. She does it all the time. If I bit her leg, she would bite me. Sometimes she bites me without me even biting her leg. This is what happens in life. 
What's more, the language here is highly symbolic. We were talking about this in community group the last time we met. This, this wonderful language that scripture uses that seems so subtle, but it's so beautiful. On your belly you shall go, he says to Satan when he curses him as a snake. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust. What does he call dust? The very next thing that he calls dust, what does he call dust? It is the cursing of man, for you are dust. The whole purpose of Satan is to devour you. In the book of Revelation, that same snake shows up, and who does he sit before trying to devour? It's Mary giving birth. You don't act like your father in heaven. You're acting like Satan. You use people for your own ends. You will not only try to devour your neighbor, but they will devour you. When you do wrong, man, you fill the needs of your flesh. You need money, so you cheat others. You need food, so you neglect others. You need success, so you slander others. You need power, so you oppress others. You need the truth, so you detest others. You need exaltation, so you degrade others. You need security, so you deny the needs of others. You need acceptance, so you lie to others. You need happiness, so you avoid the responsibility that you have toward your neighbor. This is what not loving your neighbor looks like. It is filling the desires of the flesh. But secondly... Paul says, you have been freed from your needs to become servants. It's a very odd language that Paul uses here, and the word servant doesn't really quite capture it. The same word is used in 425 to talk about Hagar and Mount Sinai and Jerusalem being in slavery. In other words, he says, you have been freed to be slaves. Your freedom ought to cause you to be enchained and enslaved to your neighbor to be in service to him as though you were under the yoke of a master, which you are, his name is Christ. We talked about open sin, but there's hidden sin as well. The problem with serving your neighbor is that it looks like everybody can do it. There are good people out in the world, aren't there? They're good people, and they, they do right things. They do very upright, moral lives. They've got them in spades. They've got them far above what some of us in here do. The Pharisees were excellently moral people. But listen, hidden sin is just as damnable in loving your neighbor as open sin is. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 14, 23, and let's think about this for just a second. Paul, in that verse, says this, every action, every action, bad, what we might think is good, every single action that is not from faith is sin. It says these, these people who look like they're doing good, who go out and do all of the right things, they give alms, they pray, they help the poor and needy, they, they say all the right things in public, they post all the right things, they're encouraging, all of them as they do good, if they are doing it outside of faith, they are nothing more than that Christmas vacation turkey. When they cut into it, it looks beautiful on the outside and inside, it's nothing but rotten tendons. That's what they're like. He says it looks nice on the outside, but inside it's nothing but sin. Why is this so? Why is it that faith is so necessary for love to actually work? Why is it sin for us to do good things for other people outside of faith? The end result of this is that they are doing good only for themselves. 
They do good things, but they do them for themselves. They do good to show themselves good. They do good to honor their own name. They do good to make themselves feel better. They do good to boast before God. (laughs) I first came into this thought when I was watching the highly philosophical and erudite TV show named Friends, when Phoebe challenges Joey to go out and do good, but not to profit from it. And everything that he does, she points out that he has gained from it. You do good to others? Did they thank you? Yes. Well, you got a bonus from that. You feel better about yourself? Well, yes, I do. Well, then you gain from that. The best exemplifying uh, nature of this was from a a French philosopher, and this isn't a joke, he actually is a French philosopher, named Jacques Derrida. Jacques Derrida was a post-structuralist, deconstructionist, philosophical person who wrote things that no man should ever have to wade through. However, he did write some very interesting things, and one of the things that he wrote about was the word gift. He says, what does it mean when we give a gift to somebody? If you get paid back in any way, then what you have done is not give a gift. He says, so you give a gift to somebody, and they know it, and they tell you, thank you. Guess what? That's an economic exchange. That's not a gift. You gave to somebody. They told you, thank you back, even Stephen. It's an exchange. It might not be an exchange that you won. Maybe their thanks was worthless. But nevertheless, you got an exchange there. So he goes through, and he says, well, how are we supposed to give to people then? If we're really going to give, how do we give? He says, well, you've got to give without them knowing that you gave to them. So you've got to be like secret Santa, okay? But the problem is that even if they don't know you gave to them, they're still thankful. They're still happy. And therefore, that accrues to you. He says, well, then it's not a gift. So they, don't, they can't even know that they received a gift. But he says, but even worse than that, if you gave it and you know you gave it, then you think better of yourself. So you can't even know you gave it. And he ends with this stupefying conclusion that the only way to truly give a gift is to give something you didn't know you gave to someone who didn't know they got it. I told you, you shouldn't have to wade through it. However, what you gain from that is this. Every action in the world, when done outside of faith, rebounds to yourself. Even the good things you do, you do for yourself, outside of faith. There's actually a parable about this. In Luke 18, Jesus gives this parable. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, Have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this one went to his house justified rather than the other. The tax collector is justified, not the one who did all the good things. Not the one who did all the good things. The one who was a sinner. Because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And it's very easy, friend, it is extremely easy to read that and to think the Pharisee was lying. That he, he didn't do all these things. But that isn't what Jesus says at all. Allow him to do all of those things, all of these incredibly good things. He says, I'm not greedy, I, I give. 
I'm not unrighteous. I keep the law the best I can. I, I don't cheat on my wife. I do everything that's been required of me. What Jesus is pointing out is his problem isn't that he didn't do those things, but those problem is that he did those things and he's proud about it. He doesn't think that he needs anything from God. All those good works rebounded to himself for his own justification. They rebounded to himself for his own pride. They rebounded to himself for his own exaltation. Instead of living like God wants and loving your neighbor as yourself, you can do all kinds of good and all you're doing is loving your neighbor for yourself. That is not what's commanded. The question then becomes, how does faith help this problem? How does faith keep you from loving that way, where you are only loving people so long as you get something back from them? The answer is surprisingly easy, and this gives us the answer to why Romans 14.23 works the way it does. What has Paul been arguing about through all of Galatians? Christ is sufficient. He is sufficient for everything you need. Everything that you could possibly want in the world is found in Christ. You have no needs that you need to have met from people. Do you need redemption? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Christ has redeemed you. You don't need redemption anymore. He has provided it for you. Is it acceptance that you're after? Isaiah 1.18, Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are crimson red, they will be like wool. Is it rest? Matthew 11.28, Come to me, all of you who are wearied and burdened, and I will give you rest. Is it purpose in your life? 1 Corinthians 10.31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all things for the glory of God. Christ gives you a purpose to your life. Is it love? Is it love from God that you want? Is it love from men that you want? Is that the need that you had to have fulfilled? Christ gives it to you. For God loved the world by sending his Son. Is it life? Romans 6.5, For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will also certainly be with him in the likeness of his resurrection. Is it, is it success, money, inheritance? What do you need? Friend, what do you need? Christ has given it to you better than anything that you will get in the world. James says this, Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. In James 2.5, he says, Listen, dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? It is supremely summed up in Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He has given you everything. In Christ, all of the treasuries of heaven have been opened up to you. And he lavishes upon you. And he keeps them in heaven for you. Not because he wants to make sure that you mature enough to your 18 and then you can go out and spend it however you want to, but because there, moth can't destroy it and rust can't oxidize it and thieves can't break in and steal. He is keeping it secure for you. Everything that you could ever want, God has provided for you in Christ. You have no need for what other people can give you. You see, because you don't need what other people can give you because Christ has given it all to you. Therefore, you can go out and love your neighbor as yourself. You need nothing from them. 
You don't need acceptance from them. You don't need love from them. You don't need compassion from them. They hurl insults at you. They mock you. They ridicule you. It doesn't matter. You get everything you need from Christ. You don't need their acceptance. You're willing to put up with persecutions and suffering in your flesh because you have everything you need in Christ. We talked about selfishness a couple weeks ago. Those who are improperly selfish aren't selfish enough. They, they seek to fill all of these needs from the world. It's like drinking salt water. It dries them up and they need to go back for more. You do good works in the world, listen, you are only as good as the last work you did. And you're only as noble as the last thought you had. There's always more you've got to go back for and it will wear you out and it dries you out and you never achieve anything. But Christ is living water. So those people who are properly selfish have all of their needs met in Christ. And therefore, they don't need it from the world. What does the psalmist say? My cup overflows. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Even though I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death, I have everything I could possibly want because God has given it to me. If Christ has given you everything, then you need nothing from people, and that is the key. When you apprehend that by faith, there is no obstacle to loving people in the world. There's nothing that they can say, there's nothing that they can do, because there's nothing that you need from them. You are free to love them, whether they hate you or whether they love you, whether they can give you things back or whether anyone knows about it. You are free to love them because Christ has given you everything you need. You can lay down your life for them because you know that Christ can simply provide for it. You can give freely of your bank because you know that Christ owns the cattle on a thousand hill, which doesn't mean much to us in our rural, non-rural economy, but nevertheless, it means that he owns a bunch of stuff. The guy literally created everything. I think that he can handle your bank account. If you truly apprehend what it means that Christ has given you all of everything, that you have been given Christ himself, you will lack no good thing. God will give you everything abundantly. If he is willing to give his son, then you are freed, friend, to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. You lack nothing. You need nothing. God provides everything to you. Go love your neighbor. And you can think that maybe you're doing all of this in your own power, but that's not the case. The Spirit is present here. And next week, we're going to talk about how the Spirit works in us. But let me say this. Even in our own understanding of what it means for us to have faith and to trust in Christ, the Spirit is working. What does the Spirit do? The Spirit's primary job is to take you and to make you like Christ. He glorifies Christ that way. Christ has sent him to do this. He takes you, your sinful human being, wretched before God with a heart of stone. He gives you a new heart. He gives you all that you need so that you might become like Christ. When Paul says that I work with all the powerful work that he works within me to make people mature in Christ, he's talking about the work of the Spirit in the life of the believer to make somebody who is a wretched sinner look like the Son of God. That's what the Spirit does. And that's what he does here. Listen, do not be surprised. Just as he says, 
God gave us the Spirit so we can say, Abba, Father. He makes us like Christ in saying, Abba, Father, back to God, who was not our Father, but now is. He does exactly what he did for Christ. This is how Jesus lived his life. How did Jesus love his enemies? Why was Jesus able to love people who scorned him and ridiculed him? How was he able to love them who went away? And we are so prone to say, well, it was God. Right? We're so prone to lean back on the fact that his deity meant that he was able to do every good thing. You miss the point of the Gospels. It's not just that he was God. It is important because he is God. But it's not just that he was God. He was also fully man. How was he, as a man, able to love his enemies? He trusted that the Father would give him everything he needed. Forty days and forty nights, he's fasting. Spirit drives him out into the wilderness. Satan comes and says, hey, stones, I know you're hungry. Make them into bread. Jesus says, no, I live by every word that comes out of the mouth of my God. I I tell you what, why don't you go up to the top of the tower, jump off, because it is said to you that he will command his angels concerning you, and, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus says to him, again, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The devil takes him and shows him all the kingdoms of the world, knowing that Jesus has come to inherit those kingdoms. And he says, I will give them to you. Just worship me. And he says, away from me, Satan. I'm worshiping God alone. In each one of those cases, what does Jesus do? He trusts the Father's provision for him of food. He trusts the Father's love of him. He doesn't need to prove his love. He's not making God prove his love by jumping off the top of the pinnacle of the temple. Instead, he trusts that God loves him. He is trusting and loving in the Father's plan, knowing that the Father will give him all good things. 1 Peter 2, 21-25, For you have been called to this, because Christ has also suffered for you, leaving you an example. The example of Christ going to the cross is an example for how you are to love others, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten He didn't threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Why didn't Jesus have to open his mouth? Why didn't he have to threaten people? Because he knew that he had a father who would give him everything he needed in due time, and that even if he went to his death, God would bring him back to life. Hebrews, verse 2. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. What a crazy passage. For this instrument of torture, Christ looks at it and he saw joy because he was doing the will of his Father and he knew that even if he suffered, even if he suffered, God would not keep any good thing from him. He was joyful to go to the cross because he knew it was his Father's will. His Father would give him all good things so he was able to love others. So let's talk for just a minute about how we can apply these things. First, love your neighbor in evangelism. Listen, the only gift that will ever truly matter. I am, I am full of respect for people like Good Samaritan who want to fill people's bellies. We are not ever, and I mean this, ever to be people who neglect the physical needs of others. Their souls are part and parcel of who they are just as much as their bodies are. You are to feed their bellies, but my goodness, feeding their bellies and leading them to hell is not love. Share the gospel with them. Stop worrying about how they respond to it. 
Stop worrying about what they're, they're going to give you as far as ridicule or mocking. If God is with you, then who can be against you? What does it matter if they mock you or ridicule you? You have a friendship in Christ that is cherished above all things. He is the joy and the center of your life. Then you need nothing from them, but you have everything to give them. Love your neighbor in evangelism. Secondly, love your neighbor in prayer. God will indeed listen to your prayer. Jesus tells you, you are to pray for the people who persecute you. You are to pray for people who go out of their way to hurt you and to injure you because of your faith. God is merciful to his enemies, even as we read in Matthew 5. He gives rain to both the just and the unjust. The sun rises on both the just and the unjust. So my goodness, people, pray for those who are enemies of yours. Pray for those people who are neighbors for you. Pray that they might come to know the Lord, whether it is through your presentation of the gospel or someone else's. Pray for those people. Because God is mighty to act. Finally, love your neighbor in suffering. Friends, Realize the great opportunity that there is in loving people through your suffering. Through the evil that they perpetuate on you, what the demonstration of your love to them shows. When your neighbors scorn you, when they hate you, when they persecute you, they make you suffer, this is the time to demonstrate love. At no point will your love for them be more evident and its source more perplexing. If you love those who love you, what good is that? Anybody can do that. But when you demonstrate that you love Christ so much, that Christ means so much to you, when he is supreme in your lives and you need nothing else, that you don't need to rebuke them, you don't need to fire scorn back at them, you don't need to fire angry Facebook comments back at them, but you can allow them to pour scorn on you and you can take it and love them all the same, you are not only demonstrating the love of Christ to them as Christ demonstrated it to you, but you are demonstrating Christ's love for you. Listen, if Christ is the supreme joy of your life, apprehended by faith, then all of your needs are met. You are no longer dependent upon the world to provide you with what you need in life. All of the things that the world can provide are weak and worthless anyway. And Christ has provided you more than they can offer of better quality that lasts forever, sealed and kept for you in heaven. The Father provides them to you abundantly through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus, make no doubt, he is the good Samaritan. And make no doubt, he found you dead, not half dead. He found you dead by the side of the road and he gave you life. He laid down his life to take your death and he was resurrected to provide you life. He is a good Samaritan. He is better than any other Samaritan in the world. But because he is the good Samaritan, you can do precisely what he has said. You can go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, regardless of what I have said, we are all very cognizant that we do not live this way. Pray that you will help me apprehend better the goodness of Christ, my Lord, that I will understand 
not just in my head, but in my heart, his glory and his goodness, his love for me, all that he can provide for me, that I might live sacrificially in the world because it's best for me, that I can better love my brothers and sisters, not only here in this church, but I can love my neighbors who, I, who are not Christian, and I can love those enemies who would stand against me. Father, give me that kind of faith. We believe. Help our unbelief that we might be holy before you through the work of your Spirit, showing us the glory and the goodness of Jesus Christ our Lord. We say this and ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand and sing, All I Have is Christ, which you can take as a limiting thing. That's all I have, and that's true, but it's also all that you ever need and more than you could possibly imagine. Stand and sing.